All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We, whether you're a new guy or not, we are so thrilled that you're worshiping with us today. I had a chance to meet some of you as you came in uh, today, and if you're a guest, we especially want to say thank you for being here. If I did not have a chance to meet you earlier, I'd love an opportunity to do that after the service is over with you. You can catch me out in the foyer. Um, also, it's great to see some of you maybe that have not been here in, in a few weeks. You've been a little more careful with new babies being born and health conditions in your own life, and to Today, you were able to be back today, and at the same time, I got a text from a couple of folks that are quarantining at the house because of COVID hitting their house. So there's a wide variety of people that are worshiping both here in the building as well as online, and we are thrilled that you're with us. If I have not met you yet, I'm Alan Pittman. I am uh, the lead pastor here as well as one of the elders. And we um, are just honored to have you worshiping with us today. It is a great time to be a part of Living Hope Baptist Church. God is doing some great things here in and among his people. And I wanted to let you know about a few of those things. Uh, first of all, if you've not been on the Hope yet today, you'll want to jump on there. You'll see that there are a couple of opportunities for some things that are coming up, especially for those that have some things going on in their lives. Maybe you have trusted in Jesus as your Savior, but you've never followed up with baptism. We have a baptism coming up at the end of February, February 27th. We would love to be able to chat with you about that. Also, if you're considering maybe joining the church and officially becoming one of the members here at our church, or you want to learn more about what our church is all about, we are having a new member class on that same Sunday. Sunday, February the 27th. All of those kinds of things are found at lhbc.net backslash the hope and you can sign up right there as well. Uh, another exciting thing that's happening is today we kicked off our um, spring semester of Bible study classes as well as a core class. We've got a core class called Christian Story. We've got Bible study class called uh, the Book of Acts. We have children's uh, Bible classes that are happening. This morning we had about 80 or 85 people in the building of all ages studying God's Word together. And they got here at 8.30. Some of them maybe at 8.32. But they were here close behind. Uh, I've heard that maybe you want to bring a coffee with you next week. Uh, we would love for you to jump in one of those classes. Uh, women, we also have a Bible study that's happening on Thursday nights. And they still have some slots of Available. I believe they meet at 8 p.m. on Thursday nights uh, here in College Station in one of the ladies' homes. You can sign up there and get information about that as well. But this is a great time to be a part of this church family. God is up to some incredible things, and here's the deal. He wants to use you to be a part of what he is doing here. Because we're studying the book of Acts this year. Uh, we're calling it the way forward. And, and as we study the book of Acts, I want us to see how the early church lived out their life in devotion to God and devotion to one another, growing in their relationship with Jesus together and sharing the gospel around the world, sharing their possessions, blessing one another, serving one another, doing life together. And if that's the kind of thing you're looking for, then Living Hope Baptist Church is that place, I guarantee you. And as we study the book of Acts, let's consider how, how we can follow the kinds of things that not a, uh, the perfect church lived out, because you'll see along the way that the early church was not perfect, but we'll see how the early church was fashioned to follow Jesus and how Jesus is calling us 
to follow him as well. So hopefully you've got a Bible with you. If you don't, there should be some Bibles near you, underneath you, uh, in one of the chairs. Grab that, and you can use that during the service this morning. And if you don't have a Bible at the house or you need a Bible, you've got a neighbor that needs a Bible, take that with you, and that'll be our gift to you. We'll be in the book of Acts. It's in the New Testament. Um, You can turn to chapter 1 in the book of Acts. As I said, we started a new series last, last week. We'll be going verse by verse through the entire book of Acts. And each Sunday, uh, you'll see at the bottom of the sermon notes, which is right here on the worship guide, you'll see on the bottom of the sermon notes where I'll be preaching from next week. And so that you can kind of read ahead of time if you'd like to. You don't have to, but you can read ahead of, if you'd like to. Next week, we'll be looking at verses 12 and four, through 14 in chapter 1. Last week, I kind of talked about how the book of Acts is almost like a sequel. It's like last week on uh, this episode of this show, this is what took place. Well, the book of Acts is not a made-up story. The book of Acts is a true account of the life of the early church. And so I'm going to kind of do a flashback, which you can always go back to our sermon archive on the website to catch up. But I want to do a very quick, I promise, like two or three sentence flashback to last week in the book of Acts because it will help us understand where we're going in the verses today. But last week we found out, or were reminded of, the fact that the book of Acts is a second volume to the Gospel of Luke. So it continues the story that Jesus, uh, that Luke tells us about the life of Jesus. And the way he phrases it in the first few verses of chapter 1 of Acts is that the book of Acts, uh, Luke, was all about everything that Jesus began to do and to teach. And the principle is that the gospel tells us what Jesus began to do and teach, and then the book of Acts tells us what Jesus continues to do and teach as he works in and through his people. And so in the book of Acts, we'll see God at work. In our lives today, whether you're a part of Living Hope or another church, God is at work doing things in and through his people. We also found out in those first few verses that Jesus spent about 40 days with his disciples after he was resurrected from the dead. And in those 40 days, we see there in verse 4 of chapter 1 that Jesus taught them about the kingdom of God. He was training them and preparing them for what the future held, and he focused, according to what Luke wrote down for us, on the idea of the kingdom of God. Today, we're going to look at Jesus' last words before he ascends into heaven. Think for just a minute. If, If a person were to know that death was coming in the next few minutes or the next few hours, don't you think that that person would take the opportunity to talk to someone they love closely to share something important with them before they pass away? Well, in this story from the book of Acts, we don't see the words of Jesus as he's about to die. Rather, we see the words of Jesus as he's about to ascend into heaven because these are his last earthly words to his disciples. And the thing we need to keep in mind is that, yes, he said these literally to the to the 11 disciples and, and the apostles and the others that were around them, but these words are said to us as well. These are Jesus' final words before he ascends to heaven. They apply not only to those in his original audience, they also apply to you and I. So these are Jesus' last words. Let's listen to them carefully. Go ahead and open your Bible and look with me at Acts chapter 1. We'll read verses 6 through 11. 
It says, so when they had come together, he's talking about all of the disciples, all of those followers of Jesus. When they came together, they asked him, here's what they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Here's what Jesus says. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And here's what these two men said. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That sound familiar? Pops told us that verse just a moment ago. But let's begin to kind of look at what's happening in these verses. If you don't have a worship guide, maybe you want to take notes somewhere else, but if you do have a worship guide, there's an excellent place to kind of take notes as we move through this morning and consider what Jesus means when he says, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. Let's look back at verse 6. Verse 6 begins with a Greek word, and I know that you probably have your English translation open, but if you were to open a, a, a Greek translation, you would see that verse 6 begins with a, a, a Greek conjunction, and the word is un, O-U-N, and it's translated in our English, depending on what translation you have, with the word so, or, or it might even be translated with the word therefore. This Greek phrase or this Greek word does mean so, but the better word would be therefore or accordingly so. And the reason I point that is out is because anytime you see the word therefore in the scripture, we want to see what the word is therefore. And what I mean by that is it's pointing back to something that happened previously. So we see right away that verses 6 through 11 uh, tie directly into what we read in verses 1 through 5 last week. That's all about the context that we see there. So when he says, because of what I've already said, I'm about to describe everything that takes place here, it's pointing back to this concept that Jesus was teaching them about the kingdom of God. So, it kind of makes sense. I'm sorry about my scratchy voice. It was sounding fine just a few minutes ago. <clears throat> But maybe I talk too much. I know that's hard to believe. I talk all the time, but for some reason it's, it's worn out today. But, but it should not be all that surprising that they ask a, what might seem like a weird question. Verse five, 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Like, like that may seem random, but the reality is they've been spending 40 days talking about the kingdom, and so it's natural for the disciples to be thinking about the kingdom. Well, what's this kingdom about? What, what is the kingdom of Israel, and why are they talking about are you going to restore it? Anytime you restore something, doesn't that typically mean you're bringing it back to the way it was originally intended? Like I, I had a 65 Ford pickup back in the day that my grandfather bought brand new. And when I got it, it had so much rust on it, it hurt to touch it. You know what I'm saying? It had that much kind of rust. And so it, they had to restore it to kind of get it back to how it's supposed to look. And the disciples were saying, Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel back to the way it should be? In the Old Testament... 
Maybe you're familiar with King Saul. Maybe you're familiar with King David. Maybe you're familiar with King Solomon. Those three guys were all kings of Israel. But did you know that after Solomon was king, the kingdom of Israel divided? They were no longer a unified kingdom. They were two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And so this idea of are you going to restore the kingdom of, of, of Israel is actually partially thinking about the past, that, that they were two kingdoms. Would we maybe come back into one? Another idea of restoring the kingdom is the fact that, <clears throat> that back in 586 B.C., the kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And at that point, there were no more kings over Israel. If you don't mind, look at the screen. We'll be looking at Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. By the way, it's always good to pray for your preacher while he's preaching. And if you haven't, you might be praying for my voice because uh, I'm feeling it. I don't know how much you're hearing it, but I'm feeling it quite a bit. So be praying for, for my voice. Ezekiel chapter 20, sorry, 37, verses 22 through 24. Keep in mind this idea of a divided kingdom. This is also written uh, to the, uh, the people as they're dealing with captivity. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 22 through 24, you could later on read chapter, uh, sorry, verses 15 through the end of the chapter. It, it talks about it all throughout here. But listen to what is said in verse 22 and following. God says, I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with their, any of their own transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes." So this is written after the nation of Israel was divided in two. This was written after the nation of Israel had experienced captivity. And so we could read this and we could think that this is pointing to a literal thing that's going to take place at the geographical location called Israel. Or we could see what it's actually pointing to. And that's pointing to the day that a Messiah would come and make things right again. That, that this Messiah would be like King David, that he would rule over the people. So we see the kingdom theme showing up. And that whenever the disciples, back to Acts chapter 1, bring up this question, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? They're not just thinking about political things. They're thinking about the coming Messiah, but they're still a little bit confused on what the Messiah's agenda would be. They want to make it more about political things. They, they want to make it more about nationalism kind of things. And the truth of the matter is, if we're not careful as Christians today, we also can attempt to make the kingdom of God more about politics and about nationalism than what it really should be about. We see, based on what is found in Ezekiel, that what God is looking for is to make a kingdom of those who would follow him. So, Let's look back at the questions that we see in Acts chapter 1. 
Verse 6, the disciples come up to Jesus and they say, well, you're about to leave. You've taught us about the kingdom. You're clearly the Messiah. And so are you about to set up shop and be the earthly ruling king that we're looking for to make things right again in the nation of Israel? And Jesus says, guys, y'all are kind of looking at the wrong thing. If you also had your Greek Bible open right now, you would see two words in the Greek. In verse 6, there would, and I mentioned this, verse, uh, this word last week. In verse 6, there is a Greek word that says men, M-E-N. And then in verse 7, there's a Greek word that is day, D-E. And any time that the gospel writers or the writers of Scripture put those two phrases together, it's a form of contrast. So in verse 6, it's as if what is being said is on the one hand, they asked Jesus this. And then on the other hand, Jesus pointed to what really mattered. Parents, have you ever been in the car with your kids and they're maybe asking the wrong question or a question you don't want to hear? Are we there yet? Have you ever heard that question asked? Or are we there yet? How much further? Those of you that have always had GPS, maybe you don't deal with it as much. Or maybe it's an easier answer. You look at the GPS and go, we'll be there in an hour and 12 minutes. But back in the day when we didn't have GPS, you'd have to like either do the math in your head or, or just say stop asking the question or whatever. But the reality is the disciples are almost doing the are we there yet. They're saying, surely the end is coming and things will be right again and our nation will be brought back together. And Jesus says, stop asking the are we there yet question and let's focus on what we should be doing in the meantime. And what we should be doing in the meantime is found right in verse 8. What does Jesus say? He says, you will be my witnesses. Verse 8, specifically, you will be my witnesses is the key thrust of this passage and in reality is the key thrust of the entire book of Acts. Over and over and over again in the book of Acts, we will see this concept that we are his witnesses. Jesus says it's time for us to witness to the true kingdom, the kingdom of God. Last week we talked about how a kingdom is, of, of God is not about a geographical location or, or, a, or a country, but rather the kingdom of God is about the reign and rule of Jesus Christ in our lives and extending it into the lives of others. Perhaps you've heard this phrase of evangelism or sharing the good news. And when you think about evangelism and good news sharing, we think about sharing about the name of Jesus, which is what the gospel writers in the book of Acts means as well. However, where they get that phrase, the idea of sharing the good news, comes from the concept that back in the day, whenever a new king would be put into power, they would send messengers throughout the kingdom to say, good news, everybody, we have a king. Good news we have a king and it was always this kind of political statement we have a king and we should be celebrating that Jesus says I am the true king and you are to go out and be my witnesses to tell others that the king has arrived and his name is Jesus so whenever we focus on being a witness for Jesus, it means that we're identifying that Jesus is king and that we are not, and that it's good news to tell others about Jesus. The reason these men could qualify as witnesses 
is because they had literally seen with their eyeballs and had been firsthand witnesses or first uh, account witnesses of what Jesus had done and what Jesus had taught and the fact that he had died for their sins and he was raised again. And because they had seen everything that he had done and taught, they went out and told others. You and I also are witnesses of what Jesus has done. And, And we're witnesses because we have it recorded in God's word. And so as we spend time reading God's word, then we're exposed to who Jesus is, to what he has done, to what he has taught, to what we have experienced in our own life if we've trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And now we are called to go out and be his witnesses as well. So I want us to look at this concept of what it means to be his witnesses. And you'll see three aspects of a witness that are found on your notes. The first one says this, that there is a priority to be a witness. All of us, if we are followers, have you got something warm for me to drink? Look at this. Oh, and oh my goodness, all kinds of stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I didn't even, I didn't sense this coming on this morning at all. Ah, there we go. All right. Sorry, guys and gals. So, If you are a follower of Jesus, then this statement, to be his witnesses, applies to you. There's no loophole. It's not, oh, this is for uh, Alan because he's our pastor. Oh, this is for Moses because he's going to be a missionary. Oh, this is for uh, Nathan because he's an elder. Like this message, this command to be his witness applies to 100% of us who are Jesus followers. So we need a priority. You see that on your notes. The priority to be a witness. You see, the mission of the church must always be about proclaiming the kingdom of God and the truth that Jesus is Lord of all. If we lose sight of that, then we're missing the priority that God has given to us as the church. It is so easy to get distracted from the mission. If the mission is to go and to make disciples of all nations and baptize them and teach them the the gospel of Jesus Christ, like Matthew 28 tells us, if we're to be his witnesses like Acts chapter 1 verse 8 tells us, then we must not be uh, sidetracked by wrong focuses. But all too often, we can be focused on the wrong things. Let's consider a couple of things we see in this text. Look at verse 6 again. Where is the focus of these disciples? The focus of these disciples is they apparently missed what Jesus was teaching about the kingdom because they're making the kingdom about the kingdom of Israel, the, the political side of things. The disciples were focused on politics and nationalism instead of the true kingdom of God. Now, I'm not talking bad about them. I think you and I would probably do the same thing if we were in their shoes. It's just the reality that they were confused. And if we're not careful, we can get sidetracked from the mission because we're focused on the wrong things. What are some things that a church could be focused on that maybe the thing is not bad, but if our focus is on it instead of on Jesus, if the focus is on the thing instead of the mission, then we will miss out. Here's some possibilities. If we're not careful, we can focus on programs and events 
Don't get me wrong, programs and events are important. The church just started a, a program or event this morning with Bible study, with, with uh, the core classes happening. The women's class will happen on Thursday night. So the programs and events aren't the bad thing. But if we, as a church, begin to focus on we've got to provide a buffet line to satisfy the consumers, then we aren't realizing the reason for the programs and events must be so that we know Jesus more and make him known. Along those same lines... We can have uh, the, the, the wrong focus of educating Christians. Now, don't get me wrong. We are to educate Christians. But what is the purpose of our education uh, of Christians? I have a picture of a cul-de-sac. You're, you're familiar with a cul-de-sac, right? A cul-de-sac is in a neighborhood where, where there's one way in. And if you're not careful, you can kind of get caught in that roundabout and never get out. And if you just stay in that little bubble, then, then, then it might be happy. But you've got to sometimes leave the cul-de-sac to go out and do something, right? And so with our education as Christians, if we just hold it into ourselves and not tell it to others, then we're missing out. And so why do we study the Bible? Yes, so we can know Jesus more. And as we know more Jesus more, then we can go and tell others as well. So we study the Bible so that we can learn it and teach it to others as well. Another thing that can sidetrack us if we're not careful is, is Sunday morning worship. You're like, wait a minute, what's that about? Hear what I'm saying and not saying. Sunday morning worship is a command that we see in God's word that we're not to forsake the assembling of the saints together. And so we should gather for worship. But if we make our church family all about Sunday morning worship, then we aren't going out and spreading the gospel like we should. I actually went to a church conference one time. I won't tell you which church it was, but I went to a church conference one time and their motto was, it's all about Sunday, stupid. Like that was what they said. And the idea was we have to be professional. We have to be excellent. We have to have the best service so that all the people in the city will come to our service. But the reality is they weren't focused on discipling their people so that their people left the Sunday morning service and left the cul-de-sac and went out to share the gospel with others. So if we're not careful, we can end up focusing on some good things and miss out on what it's all about, and that is sharing the gospel. Here's a note that I have that will pop up on the screen, and that is we must pursue his kingdom and not ours. Because if we're not careful, we'll end up pursuing our own kingdom. Maybe it's politics. Maybe it's our nation. Maybe it's our own slant on something. Maybe it's our pet project. Maybe it's our program or our event. And we'll forget that everything that we do should be driven to the idea of knowing Jesus and making him known. Another way that we can lose sight of, of the priority of being a witness is we can end up being idle, I-D-L-E. Look at verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11, Pop mentioned this a minute ago. He said those guys looked up into heaven and they just kind of stood there. Like Jesus had ascended into heaven. Can you imagine being those disciples? I can imagine there's lots of reasons why they're staring up into the sky. One, they're pretty amazed. Jesus was just ascended into heaven. That's pretty incredible to think about. They probably are confused. I mean, wasn't it just 40 days earlier that they thought that Jesus was alive and then he died? And they're like, what's up with that? And then three days later, he comes back to life. And now they're losing him again. They think, like, he shouldn't be leaving again already. There's all kinds of confusion, disappointment, amazement, even the desire to be with him. And Jesus, you shouldn't be leaving now. What, what is all of this about? And so the men, or the angels that are there, had to kind of wake them up. 
So guys, 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 Jesus, yes, he went into heaven. He's coming back, but don't forget what he just told you to do. He said, go back to Jerusalem and hang out there until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you are to go out and be my disciples. I mean, be my witnesses. They are to be his disciples, but we're to be his witnesses. Jesus had given them a task, and they were to get busy doing that task. So there's all kinds of distractions. If we're not careful, we'll lose focus of the importance of being his witnesses. As I think about why we sometimes are idle, why are we not active in being a disciple? I mean, I keep saying being a disciple. Why are we not active in being a witness to Jesus Christ? Why are we not active in telling others about Jesus? One of the reasons is we can have uh, time wasters, kind of like what Pops talked about. We're too busy feeding uh, pigs, uh, apples, uh, out of the apple tree. We're kind of wasting our time doing different things. But another reason that we might be idle and not tell others is because maybe we lack confidence. You may be thinking, I can't tell others about Jesus because I'm not a Bible scholar. Well, let me kind of throw on the screen some simple things that you can share about the message of Jesus. To share the message of Jesus just simply involves things like telling your friends that God sent his son. That, that his name is Jesus and that he lived a perfect life. That he died for our sins. That he was resurrected on the third day. That he was raised again and is now exalted in heaven. That he's calling us to believe in him and receive forgiveness of our sins. It's not a complicated message that we are to share with those around us. Don't think that you have to be a biblical scholar or a seminary grad to tell others about Jesus. Just share the simple message of the hope of Jesus. It's time for us to make being a witness a priority. Let's get off the bench and let's get in the game. Let's look back at verse 8. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we are to have a priority to share the gospel. The second point you see on here is that we are to have a power for the witness, and that power is the Holy Spirit. He tells them, you can be my witnesses, but first wait on the power of the Holy Spirit. Think for just a minute, what a call we have. Jesus says, go out and tell the entire world that I am king and that they are to trust in me for salvation. What a task, what an impossible task, what an incredible task to think that we're to go tell the end of the earth about Jesus. It seems impossible, and it is. That's why Jesus promised us his provision of his power. I love the fact that in the Greek, when you look at the mood of the verb, you will receive power, it's an indicative mood, which means the action is certain. He guarantees you that you will have the Holy Spirit to empower you to tell others about him. How are we going to tell others about Jesus? Not in our own power and our own strength. It's impossible. But if we trust in the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, then we have the power to tell others. Perhaps you're familiar with the word power here in Greek. It's, it's dunamis, which is like the word dynamite. 
So it's, 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 it's extreme power. It's capable power. It's like there's no way we can't do it if we're trusting in the Holy Spirit. The problem is when we do it in our own power and our own strength, we end up focusing on our kingdom. But when we do it in his power and his strength, then we're focusing on his kingdom. The only way we can be a faithful witness is by being clothed in the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So the challenge that I give you in this moment is that if the Christian faith is worth living, which it is, then it's worth sharing bravely. If the Christian life is worth living, then it is worth bravely sharing with others. But when I say bravely, I'm not talking about summoning up your own bravery. I'm talking about the bravery that's found, or the boldness, I should say, that's found by the power of the Holy Spirit that empowers us to go out and tell others about Jesus. When we're focused on the kingdom, then we're going to put aside our own personal comfort. As I think about being a witness, telling others about Jesus, I think about the neighbors in, in my neighborhood. We, we have 10 houses on our block, five houses on my side, five houses on that side of the street. Am I bold enough, am I brave enough to just simply walk out my front door, walk across the street, and in a conversation with my neighbor, look for opportunities to tell him or her about Jesus? You know I'm a bit goofy, you know I can talk to a fence post, you know I don't really know strangers, but if I'm honest, if I'm left to talk with someone in my own power and my own strength, I'm always going to talk about something like football or the weather or Texas or sports or A&M or Cowboys or something like that. In the flesh, I'm not going to look for those opportunities to share the gospel. And I guarantee you that if you are in the flesh, you're not either. But if I'm trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit, then I am able to be aware of spiritual moments where I can invite conversations that will point others to the hope that's found in Jesus. So, we see there's a priority to be a witness. We see, secondly, that we need a power for a witness, and that is um, the, the Holy Spirit. And then in the last one, we see there are peoples in need of a witness. Who are the peoples that need to hear the witness of Jesus Christ? We, we see it in verse 8. He says we're to be witnesses. He tells them there to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Samaria, Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I want us to look on a map at these areas. In case you aren't familiar with it, you'll see on here, um, there's a few other um, geographic locations and things that are listed here, but you can see uh, in the reddish color, whatever color that may be, you, you see Samaria. Below that, you can see that area that's labeled Judea. You can see that Jerusalem is circled. And so that's basically a map of, of, of Israel. And you see that Samaria is on the north side, Judea is on the south side, Jerusalem is right there. And he's saying you should start right here, right now, and share the gospel and spread out around to the ends of the earth. So let's leave that on the screen for just a moment. It's easy for us to look at this statement 
in verse 8, it's easy for us to look at the geography on the screen or the map on the screen and think that this is like a concentric circle. Like first start in Jerusalem and then once you do that, then go to Judea because it's right there in, in, in your, basically your, your home neighborhood and then, then go a little further to Samaria and then go to the ends of the earth. And, and while that can happen, that's not simply what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not just saying just kind of concentrically go to those places, but rather he's saying there's that, that as you do that, you, you're realizing you're reaching different people along the way. Consider the shock that the disciples may have had as he mentioned each one of those locations. You mean we're supposed to share the gospel in Jerusalem? Like, Jesus, don't you remember that Jerusalem is where the religious leaders are? Don't you remember that's who crucified you and you were killed here in Jerusalem and you want us to stick around and, and put our neck out a bit to tell others about you in the city where you were crucified? That doesn't make sense to us. Judea? Jesus, don't you remember that many times you were rejected in Judea? People turned you away and we're supposed to go and tell about you in Judea? And then Samaria, don't even get me started there, Jesus. Samaria, don't you remember that, that those are kind of half-breeds up there? I mean, when, when, when the northern kingdom was taken into captivity and some of the Jewish people stayed there and then they married some of the local people and, and they're half-breeds up there and we don't want to be around them. I mean, look at the map. They used to, they used to leave Jerusalem cross the river Jordan, which is to your east, go up through Perea, Decapolis, across into Galilee so they could avoid Samaria altogether. That's crazy, Jesus. We don't want to go share your uh, news in, in with those people. And then to think to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles as well. So we see there's geography here. We see there's different people types here. We, we see that basically Jesus is saying that Anyone in the inhabited world needs to hear the gospel, and it's our job, it's our task, it's our responsibility to go and tell them about him. So who are the peoples in need of the gospel? It's inclusive of every locale, and it's inclusive of every tribe, nation, and language, and people group. It's our duty to cross every barrier out there, geographic barrier, cultural barrier, ethnic barrier, socioeconomic barrier, comfort level barrier, and go and tell everyone we come in contact with the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. And at times, people we wouldn't normally come in contact with. At times, we need to leave our city and temporarily or permanently go somewhere else on the globe to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those that are around us. As I think about the kingdom of God, this is kind of the phrase that I, I, I put down in my notes. The kingdom of God is to span across all kingdoms. The kingdom of God is to span across all kingdoms. But all too often... We want to stay in our little comfort zone. But Jesus is commanding us, telling us that we're to have a priority to be a witness, that we have the power of the Holy Spirit to be a witness, that there are peoples in need of that witness, and we are to go out and tell others. Oftentimes, you'll bump into people, yourself included. Um, you probably won't bump into yourself. But anyway, everybody that you bump into 
probably has a personal preference. They're like, but we can't really tell people uh, at the ends of the world about Jesus until we're doing it here. So let's focus entirely, completely right here in our city and let's do it exclusively here. And then once we get that down, then maybe we'll get out to those other places. Then you'll find other people and go, well, there's a lot of Christians in town. There's a lot of churches in town. Uh, let somebody else do that. we got to go to the outer reaches of the world to tell others about Jesus. The reality is it's got to be a both and. We need a burden for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth, and we need a burden for the gospel to go to everyone in our community. So I think that's why Jesus included it all. I think that's why Jesus listed specifically those four areas in verse 8. You're to be my, disciple, my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth, because it all matters. People need Jesus Christ. You know, there are people in our city that have neither, either, either they've never heard the story of Jesus, or they have misheard it, or they've been led astray by some other cult or false witness, and they need the hope of Jesus Christ. And then there are plenty of people around the globe that literally have no access to the, to, to the Scripture, and unless an outsider comes to them to share the gospel with them, they aren't going to hear of his name. So my question is, are we willing to take Jesus' command seriously and say yes when he tells us that we are to be his witnesses? I want us to think through some possible kind of evaluation questions. And they're going to be on the screen. And, and in some places, I may have you, I may have we, I may have us. You, you may want to change the, the, the wording a little bit. And I really want to explain what I mean by this first one because it might look a little bit weird to you. And the first question says, could your familiarity with this passage actually fool you into thinking that you're living it out even if you aren't? What I mean by that is if you were raised in church, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's probably nothing new about verse 8 that caught your attention. You're like, yeah, yeah, I already knew that. Like, I could maybe even quote it. Maybe not as quickly as I could quote John 3.16, but I'd get the gist of it. I know that Acts 1.8 says that Jesus says that we'll receive power, the Holy Spirit will come upon us, and that we're to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And what I mean by that reflection question is this. Could it be that we are so familiar with the passage of Scripture that because we could quote it, we could discuss it, we can not debate it, but, but highlight some reasons why we should be doing this, that we can lull ourselves into sleep and presume because we know the content and because we know the truth of that content that we're actually applying it and living it out? Sometimes whenever we discuss a topic so much, we want to think that we're living it out like we should. Just because you know it, just because you can quote it, just because you can quote the, the vision of our church, which, to, which is to be a disciple, make disciples, be the church to the glory of God, does not mean that we're really living it out. And so as your pastor, I'm reflecting on that first question in this way. 
Am I faithfully sharing the gospel in my everyday life, or am I thinking the way that I fulfill Acts chapter 1-8 is by being your pastor and preaching the gospel on Sunday mornings and going on mission trips? And if I fall into that bracket, then I'm not being the witness that Jesus wants me to be. The second evaluation question. Is it possible that we are prioritizing the wrong things in our church or in our lives? For some of us, we are clearly prioritizing the wrong thing in our lives. You may be caught up deep in sin, and therefore you can't effectively be Jesus' witnesses because you are in the midst of sin. You could be dealing with uh, some kind of abusive situation. You could be an addiction. You could be a, a, a liar. You could be greedy. You could be dishonest. You could be lacking integrity. You could be in, in an affair. You could, you could be in all kinds of sin. And therefore, you're prioritizing the clearly wrong thing. But I'm saying that even well-intentioned Christians, if we're not careful, can end up prioritizing the wrong things in our lives where we're making a thing the end instead of the means. So I used the example of programs earlier. We can have a program at our church and think that, that as long as we're doing that program and doing it well, that that's the end game. No, the end is so that disciples are made who then go out and make disciples of other people. So I'm just asking, are there some things that have the wrong priority in your life, but they're take, and therefore they're taking your eyes off the true mission of being a witness? Here's the third question. Do you have all that you need to be his witness? I'm going to mention three specific things. This is not an exhaustive list, but these are three things that are important character traits for a person to truly be a witness of Jesus. I found this in one of the commentaries as I was studying this week, and I thought it was easy to remember. The first one <clears throat> is this. There's three things. You have what you need to be a witness. The first one is this logos, or logos, which is the Word of God. Are you spending time in God's Word? Are you studying God's Word? Are you meditating on God's Word? Are you memorizing God's Word? Are you applying God's Word? Are you in, in Bible study with other believers that you may study the Bible with them? Are you invested in knowing, understanding, loving, and following the inerrant, infallible Word of God in your life? You need the Word of God to be able to be a witness. The second one is this, the ethos, which is the inner reality that we pro proclaim. In other words, we could go out and try to be a witness for Jesus, but if we're not experiencing his life-changing message in our own life, then we're just being a salesman, right? We, we, we shouldn't have to drum up what we tell others about Jesus. It should be an overflow of what Jesus is already doing in our lives. It's not about let me give you a sales pitch that, that I'm right and you're wrong and that, that you should intellectually understand these truths about Jesus Christ. It's that Jesus has impacted my life in such a way that I cannot help but tell you about all that Jesus is. 
You see, the reason these apostles were able to go out and be his witnesses is because they had been with Jesus. They had experienced life with Jesus, and their lives had been radically changed by Jesus, and they just spilled out all of that information to those they came in contact with. In a few weeks, we'll study a passage of Scripture where, where Peter and John are going into the temple and, and a beggar is there and he's asking for money and they say, we don't really have any money to give you, but what we do have, we will give you. And they began to preach to him about Jesus. Because Jesus had impacted their lives way more than any money, silver, or gold would have changed it. And they just oozed out with what Jesus had done in their lives. So we need the inner reality of what we proclaim. And then the third thing that we need, which goes right along with that, is pathos or pathos, which is a passion for Christ. Do you have a passion for Christ? If not, it's just empty words, right? Obviously, we can't do it without the Holy Spirit's power. We can't do it without the command of Jesus. We can't do it without the authority of Jesus. We see back in verse 7 that authority is from the Father and that the authority that we have to be as witnesses comes from the Father. So we can't do anything in our own power and our own strength. My question is, do you have what you need to be his witness? This morning, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you don't need to go out and worry about trying to tell others about Jesus. You need to come to know him yourself. I shared the simple gospel message a moment ago on the screen. But the simple gospel message is this, that all of us are sinners. Every one of us is a sinner, and we are separated from eternal God forever. And we can't earn our way back to God. We can't plead with God enough. We can't we can't do the right thing. We can't be born into the right family or into the right community or the right country. We can't have the right thoughts that make us right with him. Rather, it's a, an act of faith and repentance of our sins and trusting in Jesus to forgive us of our sins. The Bible says that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life that he didn't deserve death and yet he died on the cross for our sins and that three days later he was raised that if we trust in him, we can experience forgiveness of our sins. And this morning, if you've never trusted in Jesus for salvation, today is the day. So, in this passage of Scripture we've looked at, it all focuses and hinges on verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus is commanding us to go out and tell others the good news of his, king, of his kingdom that they may trust in him for salvation and that they may serve him with their lives. And he's calling the same thing from us. In just a moment, we're going to sing, and as we do, I would encourage you to respond as God leads you this morning. Could it be that you need to come to this altar and confess a sin that, that, that is holding you back, that has caused your priority to be taken off of sharing the gospel, the thing that has weighed you down? Maybe you need to confess a sin. Maybe you need to 
reprioritize some things in your life. Maybe you need to make a commitment to be more strongly involved and committed to what God is doing through this local church called Living Hope that you might plug alongside of us as we seek to be a place so we're being disciples, making disciples, and being the church to the glory of God. And maybe today you need to say yes to Jesus for the first time. I'm going to lead us in prayer. And then let's spend a few moments singing and responding as God leads us to.